Uh, I believe that you're going to be starting a series on the church, a wonderful subject. And uh, Peter asked if I would just share something on the church. So, well, that's a very broad uh, subject. I have no idea what your series is going to be, but I thought that it would be good to think about what Jesus says about his church, because you may be surprised to know that the word, Jesus actually only uses the word church twice, and they're both in Matthew's gospel. So we're going to turn to Matthew and uh, chapter 16. Matthew is the gospel of the king, and here we have uh, Jesus talking about his church. And so this is foundational about what it means to be the church, uh, what Jesus says about the church. And so let's... Uh, If you've got a Bible, uh, we'll turn to Matthew chapter 16, and we'll start at verse 13, and I'm going to go right through to verse 26, but I think we'll just start by reading uh, verses 13 to 20. So Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. Okay? Everyone with me so far? Okay, this is good, isn't it? It feels a bit strange, but it, it sounds like it's working. Okay. So when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you. Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay, so here is Jesus, and did you notice he mentions that word, church? And really he comes and he asks his disciples one of the most penetrating questions that any of us have to deal with or face up to in life, one of the most critical questions that we will ever be asked. And before he, before he homes in on the individual, he says, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street about me? That people have been hearing about Jesus. What are people saying about him? I don't know if you went outside here and you asked, who do people say the Son of Man is? What would people say? I don't know. But in that day, people were saying things like, well, well you know, the, the, the disciples reported to Jesus the best answers that they'd heard. Some people are saying, you're John the Baptist. And some are saying there's something about your ministry that that reminds them of Elijah, the fire of Elijah. Or there's something about you that that reminds us of Jeremiah, the the, the compassion of Jeremiah. And of course, we know that some others said things like, um, you know, he's crazy. He's he's beside himself. He has a devil, others said. But the disciples just play it safe and report to Jesus the best things that people are saying about him. And then Jesus turns the question directly to them, and he says, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? 
And in a sense, that question is the most powerful question, the most profound question any of us will ever have to answer. The answer that we give to that question uh, changes everything in our life. And uh, in that moment, Jesus comes before us, looks us in the face and says, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? In a sense, it doesn't matter who they're saying I am. Who do you say I am? And that's a challenge to each and every one of us. It doesn't matter what, who your husband says Jesus is. It doesn't matter who your friends or your mentors say Jesus is. Who do you say I am? And, and just to, uh, imagine this incredible moment. Imagine being there where Simon Peter blurts. You know, that's what he does, isn't it? He's a blurter. He blurts. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what a moment this is where, where Simon Peter recognizes in Jesus that he's the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the one who is supremely anointed by the Spirit of God. He's the one they've been waiting for. He's the one the Hebrew Scriptures have been speaking of. He's that servant, that king, who will be oppressed and broken and afflicted and yet triumphant and crowned and victorious. He's the one who fulfills all hopes, all expectations of the Hebrew people. They'd waited. They'd watched What a moment this is. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is, what kind of Christ is he? He's the beloved son for all eternity before there's anything. Jesus lives in the love of his father, abides in his love. You are the Christ anointed by the spirit. You are the son of the living God sent forth from the heart of the father. And it's this Uh, discovery, this revelation, this realization of who Jesus is that changes everything for all of us. Uh, Some of you will know that John wrote his gospel. Why did John write his gospel? Why did John write his gospel? He tells us, doesn't he? So, So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so to realize that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, is to have life. To have life in the name of Jesus. And uh, this revelation changes everything. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. You are Peter, Uh, Petros, it means rock. And on this rock, uh, Petra, a slightly different word, I will build my church. And so Jesus is promising, I will build my church on a rock. And what is the rock on which Jesus is going to build his church? The revelation of the father regarding the person of his son to the hearts of man. That's the rock on which Jesus builds his church. The church of Jesus Christ is built when the Father reveals to people who Jesus is, who his Son is. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's that moment when blind eyes are opened to see who Jesus is, when distant hearts are brought near, when they see who Jesus is, when men is brought into relationship with Jesus Christ. You are the Christ. Not through education, not through logical reasoning, but revelation. On this rock, the Father reveals who the Son is. 
That's our te- isn't that your testimony? I didn't work it out. I didn't go to Bible school. And they told me it wasn't education. It wasn't logical reason. At some point in my life, the father revealed to me who his son was. That he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. And Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. I, who's going to build his church? Who builds the church? I, Jesus says, I will build my church. I will. Is he thinking about it? Is he thinking, I might build my church? There's a possibility I'm thinking about building my church. I will. He's certain. I will build my, whose church is it? Is it the church of of uh, the Baptist denomination? Is it the church of, of Peter Mead and his gang? Whose church is it? I will build my church, Jesus says. It's mine. Uh, it's profoundly precious to me. It's personal. It's intimate. It's not just any church. It's my church. And it's mine. I will build my church. And what on earth is the church? What did Jesus have in his heart when he said that? What was in the heart of Jesus when he said, I will build my church? I was in Bath Abbey the other week with some American friends. Wonderful building. And I thought to myself, I think this building was the furthest thing from the heart of Jesus when he said, I will build my church. Impressive buildings, men in robes. Is that what he had in mind? Rituals, ceremonies, Worship songs, band, expository sermons, rotors, children's work, charitable incorporated organizations, business plans, budgets. What did Jesus have in his heart when he said, I will build my church? Well, that word that we translate church is ecclesia. Ecclesia, it means a people, a gathering, an assembly, a community. And it literally means called out. A people who are called out. A people who are called out from the world. A people who are called out from sin. Who are called out from self. Jesus calls a people out. This is basic to the gospel. He calls you by name. Come and be mine. Come and follow me. Come and identify yourself with me. Come and belong to, to me. Come and be mine. Jesus calls a people out. And the church is the people who belong to Jesus. Wonderful. And it's more than that. This word ecclesia, it would have been a political term to a people who represented the king. Uh, a, a, like a parliament or a congress. And they were given this task to bring the rule and reign of the king. To every aspect of society. That was what the ecclesia were, like a, like a parliament. And, and Jesus is king. And I will build my church. I will have a people who will be mine. And they will bring my rule and reign to every aspect of society. I will build my church. It's a promise. Now, statisticians will tell you if the church in the UK continues to decline at its current rate, it will be extinct by 2050. They've not taken into account the promise of Jesus, I will build my church. It's his triumphant commitment, and we can count our life on it. You can throw yourself on this truth 
Take heart. Jesus says, I started it. I will not abandon it. I will finish it. And he is unstoppable. I will build my church church, and the gates of Hades, he says, shall not prevail against it. Now, Hades is that place, that realm of death. That's what it means, the, the word Hades. And we, the world we live in, everything's dying. Everything is in bondage to death. And it's like there are these locked gates, uh, fortifications, holding the world in bondage to death. But Jesus says, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. See, the church is incredibly powerful. Uh, It's uh, overcoming, invading the realm of death to bring life. Pushing back darkness to bring the rule and reign of King Jesus. Not just, the church isn't just resisting and cowering in the corner, scared of of the darkness in the world. The church pushes back. It's a powerful force shining light into the darkness of the world. That's why Jesus had to die. We read about it in verse 21. To enter in to the realm of death and destroy its power. To swallow death. Uh, The writer of the Hebrews in chapter 2 says this. That through death he, that's Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Subject to lifelong slavery, locked in behind these locked gates, in bondage to death, imprisoned. And Jesus enters into the realm of death. He takes the keys and he bursts open the the gates and he destroys the power of death. He rises triumphant over death. And the risen Christ stands. I am the living one, he says. I was dead, but behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys. I've got them to death and Hades. I've got them. I've opened the gates. The gates of Hades shall not prevail. Jesus triumphs over death, and so does the church, the people who is. The church is not weak and insipid. It's incredibly powerful. And uh, incredibly powerful, bringing in the rule and reign of King Jesus through believing prayer. Given the keys of the kingdom, binding, loosing on earth and in heaven. Uh, Binding, loosing on earth, in heaven. So prayer, what's prayer? Prayer is bringing the heart and purposes of God from heaven to earth. And uh, the intentions of heaven are fulfilled on earth through the church that prays. We have this incredible spiritual authority. Satan trembles, darkness flees, death retreats when we pray. Why? Because of who Jesus is. He's the Christ. He's the son of the living God. And because we know him, we know him. The heart of Jesus, come and know me. Come and know me. 
Give up everything else and come and know me. You may remember earlier on in Matthew chapter 7, when the ache of Jesus, when, when these people come and they did all these things in his name. We did this in your name. We did that in your name. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me. I never knew you. The sadness in the heart of Jesus, because he longs to say to a people, come and know me. Come and be mine. Come and know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? These are simple things. Do you know him? Paul says, doesn't he, in, in Philippians 3, I've counted everything loss. I've counted everything garbage, dung, rubbish. Everything else stinks compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I love that. I love it when he's come to that point and he's realized that knowing Jesus is is better than everything. And then I love it what he prays in verse 10 of chapter 3 in Philippians. I want to know Christ. I know him. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to be so intimately connected with him, I become like him in his death. That somehow, and and the Apostle Paul doesn't know how, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And uh, to know Christ is to know the cross. We cannot have Christ without the cross. And that's what Jesus says here in Mark chapter 16. Jesus says in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples. Now now it's been revealed who he is. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And he must be killed. And on the third day, he must be raised. And... uh, If we want to have Christ, we have to have the cross. At the center of the church is the cross of Christ. From that time on, Jesus is looking ahead to that which is he's coming. He's moving towards Jerusalem. I must go to Jerusalem. And remember Palm Sunday, King Jesus rides in on a donkey. Hosanna, Hosanna. I must suffer many things, Jesus says. And we know the story of Holy Week when he weeps in the garden, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Not my will, he says, but your will. When he's betrayed by a kiss, where he's arrested, where he's denied and he's tried and he's falsely accused and he's mocked and he's beaten and he's insulted and abandoned and and he's condemned and he's sentenced to death and the crowds cry crucify him and he's spat on and he's tormented and he has a crown of thorns pressed around his head and he carries his own cross I must suffer he says many things and I must be killed I must enter into death behold Jesus on the cross What love? Have you ever seen love like this? The love of God that shines forth as Jesus is nailed to a cross. And as he dies, 
Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And as he's barely able to breathe, he reaches out to a criminal. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Father, forgive them. The Christ, the son of the living God, dies to bring us into the love of the Father. It's finished, he says. It's accomplished. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Good Friday. It's good because of the power of the cross. Every curse Every darkness, every sin is dealt with on the cross. He absorbs sin into himself. Maybe you've heard the story of uh, what happened in Northern Ireland, I believe it was. And I think it was in a crowded marketplace. And uh, it, it was in the time when there were difficulties in Northern Ireland. And somebody threw a grenade into this crowded marketplace. And that grenade had the power to destroy everyone in that place. And in that split second at that moment, a civilian, a soldier who was not on duty, saw the grenade and he jumped on top of it. And he blew him up. But everyone else was saved. Everyone else was saved. He, he alone died. He Everyone's saved by his death. One dies rather than many. Christ absorbs sin into himself on the cross and destroys it. Jesus says, it's finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus breathed his last and he died and he was buried. And he was sealed in a tomb. Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must be killed. And on the third day, I must be raised to life. Glorious resurrection. The women visit the tomb. They've got their burial spices. The stone is rolled away. The grave clothes are folded. He's not here. He's risen. He's raised. He's alive. Out of the darkness of death, the light and life of Christ blazes forth. Jesus walks out of the tomb alive. He must, 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 must. The wonder of the cross. This is, this is the way that Jesus must build his church. Through the cross. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the suffering servant who is pierced, who is crushed. And Peter is horrified. Look at verse 22. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter is horrified. He doesn't get it. He rebukes Jesus. How often do we want things a certain way or we expect God to do things our way? And the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. It's the way of death. It's the way of 
resurrection. It's the way, the wisdom of God is the cross. The power of God is the cross. The cross is not just doctrine. The cross is not just good lyrics for the songs that we sing. The cross is life-transforming power, united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. The power of Pentecost, the power of the Spirit, is that they saw the meaning of the cross. The Spirit unites us with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And so we realize that his path is our path too. The way of the cross, the narrow path that leads to life. And now Peter, Peter rejects this. He doesn't understand. He wants a Messiah. He definitely wants a Messiah, but he wants a Messiah on his terms. He wants to give Jesus a crown without a cross. And Jesus rebukes him in the strongest possible terms. Can you imagine hearing this from Jesus? Get behind me, Satan. Your thoughts are more in line with Satan's than they are with with the thoughts of Jesus. You're a stumbling block, an offense, a hindrance. You deny the cross. What is it that makes the Apostle Paul weep? You know what it is that makes the Apostle Paul weep more than anything? He tells us in Philippians chapter 3, it wasn't when they tortured him. It wasn't when they beat him. It wasn't when they rejected him, slandered him, accused him, abused him, whipped him. It wasn't when he was shipwrecked. It wasn't when they turned their back on him. It was when they denied the cross. He wept. And at the core here we see Jesus turns to Peter. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Your mind is on the things of God, not on the things of God, but on the things of man. And we must realize there is a sharp conflict between the things of God and the things of man. And we live in this tension, but the ways of God are utterly different, utterly set apart, utterly holy, utterly pure, utterly glorious and beautiful. The beauty of his ways that he calls us to and and look at what Jesus calls us to. In verses 24 to 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple, do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? A disciple is one who, a learner. I want to be someone who learns from Jesus. Do you want to be someone who learns from Jesus? 
Whoever wants to be a disciple must go to the cross and find there life. There's no other way. We must be a people who go to the cross, are confronted with our own selfishness, our own sinfulness, and we're broken there. We're humbled by a God who would stoop, who would love us that much that he would suffer and die in our place. Where he deals with all of our ugly selfishness, where he deals with all of our sin, where we come to the cross weeping because of our sin and rejoicing because he's dealt with it. He's dealt with it all. Spurgeon said, never happier than weeping at the foot of the cross. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part by the whole, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. And we realize that true Christianity is the cross. His cross is our cross. And this isn't bad news, friends. This is good news. This isn't the bit where we get miserable and say, oh, I have to deny myself. No, we realize that we are so selfish to the core and our sin is so dealt with, we gladly deny ourselves. We gladly deny everything in us that is not of Christ. Paul said, didn't he, these wonderful, wonderful words. There was no sense of sorrow or sadness in his heart. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live by in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Jesus built his church through the power of the cross in us. He says, doesn't he, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, must renounce his old life, must renounce my old ways, my own old agendas, my own ambitions, all of my old self-reliance. I renounce it all. All of my self-dependence, everything within me that thinks I'm something, I gladly renounce it all at the cross of Christ. He's dealt with it all. All of my ugly selfishness, all of my self-centeredness, I gladly deny myself because I realize the most fundamental truth is that I'm not the center. I'm profoundly, you are profoundly loved. You are profoundly valuable, but you are not the center. Christ is. He must deny himself, must take up his cross. The ultimate act of obedience. Willing to suffer. Willing to share in his sufferings. Willing to be conformed in his death. And Jesus says, must follow me. In all glorious simplicity, the church 
is the people who follow Jesus. Profoundly personal. Know him. He he says, come and know me. Follow me. Leave what you're doing and follow me. Leave behind your religion and follow me. Leave behind all of that and follow me. Follow Jesus. Don't follow my ways. Don't follow the the ways of the Baptists. I say that to the Baptists. We're not here to follow the Baptists. We're here to follow Jesus. We're not here to follow Peter Mead. We love him. He doesn't get it all right. This won't be on a tape, will it? it? We're here to follow Jesus. We don't follow our traditions for the sake of our traditions. We don't follow our denominations. We don't follow the ways of the world. We don't follow the ways of man. We follow Jesus. And even if no one else comes with me, we follow Jesus. In all glorious simplicity, this is what it means to be the church. And Jesus says... Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, we lose our life and we find his life. We receive his life. He gives us his life. This is the gospel. I die And I'm raised to live his life. Christ is my life. He doesn't just sprinkle blessings from afar. He doesn't just sprinkle a bit of forgiveness over there. Have a bit of peace. Have a bit of sprinkling of comfort. No, he is my peace. He is my comfort. He is my righteousness. He is my life. And I lose my life and I find his life. He, and he shares everything that is his with us. His peace, his joy, his courage. Christ has a fearless heart. And he wants to share it with us. And most supremely, his father. His father. The word on the lips of Jesus more than any other word. Father, Father, his Father becomes our Father. That's life. That's what it means to be alive. That's what it means to find life. Resting in the love of his Father through the Son, by the Spirit. The Christ, the Son of the living God, comes from the heart of the Father in the power of the Spirit to bring us into the heart of the Father. That's what it means to be alive. That's what it means to be the church. And we lose everything to gain Jesus. Who do you say I am? Who do you say he is? He's the Christ, the son of the living God. And he is building his church And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And he builds his church through the power of the cross in his people. The beauty and power of the cross in our lives. We bow low. We bow low in humility and we embrace the cross. 
dead to sin, alive to God. Hallelujah. Dead to sin, alive to God. The beauty of the cross, the people of the cross. The life-transforming power of the cross. 